My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Once upon a time, the British synth-pop group Tears for Fears sold over 30 million records with anthems like Everybody Wants to Rule the World and Shout peeking out in the late 80s before the duo of Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal decided it was time to break up the band. As unsettling as this was for many of their devoted fans, and we'll talk about that, it was even more so for Kurt Smith, who moved to New York, remarried, settled in Los Angeles, but shied away from the limelight. Solo projects followed, writing movie soundtracks, a little acting. But in the year 2000, Kurt and Roland decided to reunite just as their songs were gaining newfound relevance with the likes of Weekend, Kanye West, David Guetta, and Nas covering and sampling from their catalog. A new album, The Tipping Point, and a world tour are set for February 2022. So welcome, Kurt Smith. Thanks, David. Good to see you. Sounds like a lot's been going on over all those years, right? Yeah, it seems a lot. Although, you know, coming back to New York brings back a bunch of memories, as I'm sure you know. Yes. Uh, so yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. You were living here, when was that? Like in the early 90s? Yeah, I moved in. I met Francis at the beginning of 1988 and ended up moving here while getting our apartment here at the end of 88. And then, so we were here from 88 till 98 when we upped and, and moved to Los Angeles. So you were here for the 90s then? Exactly. Yeah, up until 98. Which was, you know, very much of a tipping point in New York where things went from the more grungy to, you know, Soho becoming a mall with all yeah, kinds of exactly. designer brands and things like that. No, well, we lived through that because, you know, as you know, our, our apartment was on Mercer Street. So when we moved in in 1988, there was really nothing there. We were the first people to move into our building. The building had just been renovated. There were no downtown hotels. The Soho Grand wasn't there. The Mercer was way in the distance. So it was really a quiet neighborhood when we moved there in 88. But by the time we left in 98, it was we were living in the middle of a shopping mall. And now you find that it's kind of quiet again, right? Because all the tourists have kind of disappeared for now, at least. Well, yeah, not not as quiet, though. I mean, the times we've been back, I mean, even up until we left New York in 98, I think the really busy time was always the weekends. In the week, it tended to be still quite quiet when we lived here. But I just was walking around there yesterday and the day before yesterday, and it was so busy. I mean, compared to what it was when we lived there in on a weekday, on a weekday. Right. Well, you know, New York is back and everybody is, is very yeah. excited about that in some ways. But at the same time, it was kind of nice not to have all those tourists walking around. Well, I, for I mean, a few it, was, it was, yeah, it was the same in Los Angeles. The difference in Los Angeles was um, it was nice to have no traffic. No traffic. Because yeah. no one was going to work. Yeah. The things we miss from the COVID era. Well, I, I alluded earlier to some of your fans, and I was very impressed, in fact, because I was 
looked at on YouTube and you know some of the videos and interviews and things that you did and the fans comments just struck me as being very sincere very devoted very emotional uh, there's a contact there that it's, I don't know how many artists could actually have that today in the same way. Maybe it's it's because of the music, is it? I, I feel like there's such an emotional resonance with the songs that you make that when it connects with a person, it, it stays with them. Yeah, I think it's a personal connection. It's not, it's not really something we strive for. Um, the only thing we attempt to do is is be honest with ourselves. We've never been one. We've never been a fashionable band. You know, we all know that. But but we sang from the heart lyrically. We write, you know, quite meaningful lyrics, obviously, that tend to resonate with a lot of people that feel the same way. Um, you know, so I think that's where the personal connection comes from. It's really in the lyrics more than anything else where people can feel an empathy. They, they feel that someone understands them, I guess, which is the only way we can write. So because it's the only way we can write, I think that's why we have that personal connection with, with a lot of people that listen to our music. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it's, it's the lyrics because I think you could also make a case that it's the, the music as well and the sort of the emotional buildup and, and sort of lushness of the productions and, you know, other parts of the music production that also have an impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that we tend to, I mean, if there was any way to sort of describe our music, and I've always failed abysmally because it's just music we like, so I, I don't really know how to put a label on it. But um, it tends to be something that's quite big sounding, as you say, lush at times, tends to be more rhythmic. So it's a sort of a rhythmic backdrop over quite deep, intense lyrics. So it's not, it's not really shoegazing. It's more accessible. So, I mean, the, the kind of lyrics we write maybe at times would be more akin to very introspective bands. We don't tend to be that introspective. And, and you know, I use the phrase shoegaze because that's what we used to call them when, when I was younger. It was like the kind of really dark, depressing kind of singer-songwriters Musically, our music is not dark and depressing. I think sometimes our lyrics are, but we, we tend to use a backdrop of things that are far more palatable and more lush and bigger. Yeah, I find them somewhat hopeful in a way. I don't know why. Well, maybe maybe it's the juxtaposition between the lyric and the music. Okay, the that music, could be it. The, the music and the melody tends to be more joyous, whereas the lyric tends to be darker. So, So I think the lyric set against a backdrop of something that's far more palatable and and has a certain amount of joy to it really makes you feel that that emotion is not so bad, if you see what I'm saying. Yes. And, and you said you were not a fashionable band, but uh, perhaps that's one of the reasons you're still around and people still connect to the music. Fashion, by its definition, is passing and, and something new has to come to replace it, whereas timeless, let's say, is a word that I've seen. In fact, uh, you know, as, as I was reading these comments, uh, several of, of your fans mentioned that word, that your music is timeless. Yeah, we've never really followed any trend particularly. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's down to us personally. And I think also the fact that we come from 
the, t- the city we do, which is the, a city called Bath in England, which is not a fashionable city. We weren't from London. We weren't from, you know, that had a music scene. We weren't from Manchester that had a music scene or Liverpool that had a music scene. There was no music scene in Bath. We were it. We were the music scene, you know. We were the band from Bath. I mean, other people moved to Bath, like Peter Gabriel, you know, is still based there, but we were the only band from Bath. So there was no real fashion and music scene where we came from. But you were inspired by the punk scene, or what was it uh, New Wave called then, or what was it that got you going? I mean, I think all of the above. The the fact is, I think if you're a music lover, which which I am, it depends, you know, what age you're at. So when I was younger and first becoming a musician, I was kind of into heavy rock music because, to be honest, it's the simplest to play. And when you're <laughs> learning, it's kind of, a, you know, Black Sabbath is not complicated to play. Rush might have been, but I didn't try and learn Rush. But then I was sort of like Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult. Blue Oyster Cult were a little left field, but I was a huge Blue Oyster Cult fan. But then punk came along. So I loved the punk movement, but at that age, so when was that? I would have been 15, 16 years old. So it spoke to me because I was the correct age for that anger. And then in England, the ska movement then came along two-tone in England. So I was heavily into that. And then as we started to play music, we were in a band. So I think, and it was kind of a mod band. So the two-tone movement sort of did influence us. But then we started writing more intense songs, lyrically more intense. And at that point, myself and Roland decided to leave the band we were in and, and hopefully stay as a duo. And luckily for us at that point in time, technology was just starting to come in that allowed you to do most of the recording yourself. You didn't really need a band. Like Lynn drum machines came in, synthesizers, sequences, and Gary Newman. And I think Gary Newman at that point in time was probably a big influence because it was someone who did everything electronically. And so for the first album, our first album, The Hurting, not that it sounds anything like a Gary Newman, but um, it enabled us to just stay as two people and do most of the work ourselves. You talked about the music and the kind of uh, songs you started writing at that time, because I've read that you came up with the name Tears for Fears partly inspired by the Arthur Jano, The Primal Scream, which was a kind of therapy. John Lennon was using it, I guess, when and Yoko, and when they were doing that kind of music that was very primal, I guess is the best word for it. So was that something that uh, you just sort of had a casual relationship with, or were you involved with that more deeply? Well, we were, both of us, I mean, it was the one thing that kind of, tied us together at that age. We, we both had read The Primal Scream. Um, the, the band name Tears for Fears actually came from one of his other books called Prisoners of Pain. And it was just a chapter about children's nightmares and if children were allowed to be more natural, i.e. cry, scream, shout, do the things, as opposed to being told to shut up, they probably would have less nightmares at night. So it was tears for fears. Uh, I mean, that's where it came from. It also rhymes. But I mean, Roland ended up going through primal therapy. I didn't. Um, I was in the end slightly put off by it. Um, and the, the reason I was put off by it was because I met Arthur Janov. And, <laughs> Never meet your hero. <laughs> exactly. And he came to one of our shows in London in the very early days. Um, 
and you know he knew we were we were big followers of his and he invited us to lunch and we went out to lunch with him the topic of conversation was wholly about the fact that he would like us to write a musical about primal fear <laughs> so he was trying to monetize our kind of belief system and that sort of turned me off plus and weirdly as i've gotten older you know, a lot of it is incredibly valid, primal theory, but the one thing I have a very hard time with now being a parent is that, you know, part of, of, of his belief is that children come in a blank slate. And I think, you know, A, being a parent and B, the, sci the science that has evolved since then tells us that that is just not the case. You know, children have, you know, our DNA, they, they have inbuilt tendencies towards certain things so that i kind of didn't believe uh, and that changed my thoughts somewhat about primal theory i just was hearing a podcast with jane goodall who's you know the famous uh, yeah. anthropologist I, I guess who who works with chimpanzees and and she was reminding me of something you know how our dna is 98% the same as those gorillas out there yep. so it's just something to to think about as well is is that song shout you mentioned shout so is shout like the most direct expression of that primal scream or not well it was it was direct in the sense that it was shout so it was overt but by that time i think we'd started to sort of drift away from primal theory i think that was more political than it was psychological um, because that was during okay. Songs from the Big Chair. During Songs from the Big Chair was the Thatcher era in England. And um, so we started to get more political at that point in time. Um, as far as Arthur Janow's influence on us, I would say that was more our first album, The Hurting, because that was very personal. It was about our personal hurt and upbringing. And I think by the time Songs from the Big Chair came along, we, we, we were getting far more political at that point in time. We we were outward looking more than inward looking, I think. Because when it comes to politics, you know, the world we're in right now, how it's very difficult to get people to rationally explain positions and try to discuss with somebody why they're wrong based on facts, which because they have mm. their alternative facts, facts and things like that. And, you know, a lot of the conversation is about emotion. You know, how do you get people to change their mind about something? Whether is it by giving them more information? That doesn't seem to work. What seems to work is emotion. Somehow, if you can get people to feel a different yeah. way of, of relating to what's going on as opposed to trying to be rational. That's what I still feel in your music, because even if you perhaps approached it from a political perspective, maybe your fans are responding more emotionally than politically. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, I think music, the one thing music can do is make you feel a certain way. And that's, that's a, a power and a strength that music has more than any other art form, I feel. And, and I can give you a, a prime example of how a bar of music can change the way you feel completely. Now, if I walk on stage, say, and this is this this would be an example of the last tour we did. We opened with "Everybody Wants to Rule the World," which is a song everyone knows. It has a guitar intro. It's just three notes. That's it. So, that's it. Everyone suddenly feels happy. 
as soon as they hear those notes. So it's music can actually change the way you feel because it brings back an emotion or a feeling of where you were at that time, how you felt when you first listened to that song. So it's a very powerful medium, music. It can change people's feelings completely. Just, you know, even chords, you know, we do call major chords, happy chords, minor chords, sad chords, because that's how they make you feel. So it's it's an incredibly powerful medium and, and not one that, you know, we're particularly conscious of. It's not like we try, attempt to do that, attempt to musically make people feel happy or, or a certain way. We use it to make ourselves feel happy or a certain way. Luckily, people relate to it. So then it becomes widely known. But um, yeah, I, I find music is a powerful medium. But going back to how you change people's minds, that, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And, you know, and sometimes it's hard for people in the public eye to do it. I mean, the amount of times on, you know, online, I mean, say for me, I'm a big Twitter user. I've been told to stick to the music. You know, if I voice my political opinions. <laughs> well, they'll just right? find a weakness. You know, they don't want, you know, they'll say well, anything, well, right? Yeah. Well, the ridiculous thing is, is that I, I, my answer always is, have you actually listened to our music? Exactly, I mean, yeah. you know, it's not like we would ever be mistaken for being conservative in any way, shape or form. We're, we're clearly quite liberal. I mean, that's in our lyrics. That's in songs like Shout, like Sowing the Seeds of Love, like Everybody Wants to Rule the World. We even had an occasion not that long ago where I think it was National Review, you know, the, the conservative magazine wrote, wrote an article about everybody, how everybody wants to rule the world really should be a conservative anthem. And, <laughs> and, I, I, and I just responded to, I think it was National Review, I just responded saying, clearly sarcasm and irony is not your strength. <laughs> because they were taking the lyrics literally. And, and I'm like, no, we were being sarcastic. Well, let's talk about that song because it is a super powerful song. And I have to say, I I don't associate it with any particular time or place. For me, that's, I was older already. So I don't, you know, younger people have more of a kind of temporal reaction to some of that music that you hear when you're young that reminds you of a particular thing. But it's just a song that I've loved and always, anytime I hear, like you said, as soon as I hear those first few notes, I'm like all perked up and ready to start yeah. singing along. So what? tell me how that song came about and anything about it. I'm curious. Strangely, it's, it's, it is one of the simplest songs we've ever done. There's really not much on it. Um, and it was not, I mean, I wouldn't say it was an afterthought. It was the last song we did on Songs from the Big Chair. And we were kind of looking for another single and we didn't know which, we, we had a choice of two or three songs. And we picked that one because it actually had a shuffle beat. It had a kind of an American driving kind of feel, which is why the video ended up the way it did. And we just loved the feel of it. It made us happy as it, as it does to a lot of people now. But the song lyrically is, again, probably about, yeah, I mean, it's about British politics at the time and, and global politics because it was the Thatcher-Reagan Reagan era at that point in time. And, and America was so busy trying to empire build and Britain was sort of, Thatcher was tagging along and we'd gone through the Falklands War. And, and it was really talking about how kind of looking after yourself would probably be more beneficial than trying to basically 
tell everyone else how they should behave, but tell every other countries how they should be running their country or trying to influence the way other countries are run. So that was the, the basis of the actual song lyric. But again, put against something that's a lot more palatable, which is the kind of happy feel of the song. It's a sort of an, an intense lyric against a very happy backdrop. Isn't it funny, though, how a song that's like so specifically about a particular time and place has become so timeless in a way that now Nas has used it, right, almost added to it, like added, made a new version of it practically by incorporating his lyrics with your song as well. And it was used in the Hunger Games, yeah. right? Did you know you had a hit at that time? Did, when did you feel that there was something special here that was going to outlive its, its immediate storyline? Well, we, we never know when we're recording things. I mean, we're not particularly good at that. Um, that <laughs> and also, well, I, I, think, I think it's a good thing that we don't think about that. I mean, I think that if we started thinking about that, that's when the current trend starts to influence your music as opposed to you making music that you really feel is representative of you and that you believe in. So if we start thinking about what the current marketplace thinks of what we're doing, then we'll get lost. We can only ever think about what we want to do. But once we'd finished it, the reaction we got from other people, you know, from our families at that time, certainly the record company, and in a big way, the American record company, they loved it and thought it was this going to going to be this huge hit. We disagreed with the American company. But, uh, <laughs> That'll teach you. <laughs> yeah, because everywhere else, weirdly, everywhere else in the world, apart from the U.S., "Shout" was the first single because we thought that was the big single, which which it was. Which it but, was, yeah. But in America, they insisted on releasing "Everybody Wants to Rule the World" first because they thought that was more American than "Shout." And and we argued with them, and, and they won, and they were correct. But um, we we didn't agree with them at the time. Yeah, well, maybe you were both correct. Yeah. One thing yeah, you, you mentioned, keeping up with trends or not trying to be influenced by whatever is popular at the moment. But at the same time, you want to be current, right? You don't want to ignore yeah. whatever is new out there that, let's say, hip-hop, for example, because that was kind of coming up at the same time as you were, wasn't it? You know, that hip-hop was kind of breaking at the same time as you were making your music of the late 80s, yeah. early 90s. And certainly today, it's become ubiquitous in a way nobody ever had predicted. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you balance, like, sort of being true to your roots and, and what the kind of music you're comfortable making with whatever's going on around you that's may be interesting. Maybe it could be incorporated into your work. Do you ever try to do yeah. that or think about it? I don't think, again, it's a, a conscious thing. I think that it's, it's things you end up liking. Like when you're talking about, you know, when hip-hop started taking off. I mean, I remember being in the studio, and I think it was during Songs in the Big Chair, probably. I'm guessing, I can't remember what year it would have come out, but when White Lions came out and listening to that in a studio and going, whoa, this is good. So what, you're, what you end up taking from those things is actually a sense of rhythm more than anything else. I find the rhythmic side of, of hip-hop and, you know, even listening to, and I'm not the biggest Kanye fan, but even listening to Kanye now, the production on the Kanye record is great, you know. I was a huge D'Angelo fan, so I listened to a lot, you know. So there's, there are different influences, but it's really down to what you like. It's never normally 
following a movement. So I like the best of that or what I consider to be the best of that. So I listen to all kinds of music and that's bound to find its way into our music at some point. But in the end, thankfully, we always end up sounding like us, whatever. So, you know. So how do you feel about sampling or being, you know, does it make you, does it feel like an homage? Does it feel like, oh, somebody is sort of, taken a piece of our work and, and used it for some other purpose. And it, I, it really, it, I mean, I think it depends on how it's used. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, I actually like very different versions of our songs that may be sometimes more in tune with the lyric and, and the emotional intent behind the lyric that like the Gary Jules, Michael Andrews version of Mad World was very, the recording was very much more in tune with the lyrical content. It was a lot darker. You mentioned Hunger Games. That was uh, Lord's version of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. That was a much darker, like, worldview and a much darker recording. So, in a sense, was actually more in tune with the lyric than, than our version was. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the only times I, I have an issue, and we could go back to the Kanye thing where he did took a, a track called Memories Fade from The Hurting, but he wanted 80% of the publishing. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like, no, you know, you've just taken our song, taken the backing track, taken the melody, and all you've done is change the lyric. And, and you want that, you know, because we should be so happy and blessed that you, you know, stole our song. So I have an issue when that happens. But in general, I'm more than happy. I love to hear other people's interpretations. But again, you know, as long as we're getting fairly credited and, and paid for it. Yeah, so the business of music has certainly changed as well over time. One of the comments that I pulled from one of your fans on, on from your video, these guys, after decades, are still writing meaningful music, and yet the charts and bigger radio stations will, with all likelihood, ignore them simply because they're an older band and won't market to younger folks who are listening to the shit on Radio 1 that you hear once and will never hear again. So I'm not even sure it's important for radio play these days. So you, you know, you've been through the the cycle in a way of like the mega concerts, the the stadium tours and things like that. Then you, when you broke up the band, you, you sort of became more introspective. You did your solo album, got involved in other projects, scores for films, things like that. And now you're back in the studio, producing albums, going on tour. So what is the trajectory of, of all of that? And how are you happy that you're back where, where you were? Or would you have preferred another option along no. the way if, you, if things had worked out differently? No, I'm, I'm happy as long as I'm enjoying what I'm doing, whatever that may be. I was lucky, and I've said this, you know, a number of times before, I, w- I was lucky enough that, you know, at the height of, our success, the Tears for Fear success, you know, in the late 80s was the least happiest time of my life. So I don't <laughs> equate, I don't equate fame and success with happiness at all. I mean, I'd got, I was going through a divorce. I was not getting on with Roland. I hated being famous. I hated being recognized on the street. You know, I'm quite a private person, so I didn't enjoy any of that, you know, which is was the joy of moving to New York because, you know, as as you know, no one cares who you are <laughs> in New York. If anything, they look at you with a little bit of disdain, you know, for being someone well-known, which I thought was very healthy. So as long as I'm happy, I mean, the, the, the new record, 
the tipping point, I think, is a great record. So I'm really happy about that. As far as what happens with radio play and everything else, well, as you said, I don't think radio really matters that much. The joy of things like Spotify, um, Apple Music, stream, basically streaming in general. I mean, the downside is we don't get paid a fair rate and we have to make up that income somewhere else. But the upside is you're being discovered by a whole new audience. So people who tend to listen to bands now, I mean, our audience now is, is actually, you know, people our age, yes, make up you know, a large percentage of the audience. But I would say 30 to 40% of the audience are younger. We did a show three three years ago. We did three or four years ago, we did Bonnaroo, um, which is, you know, a festival undoubtedly for younger people. And we thought we were playing this sort of tent, kind of tent. It was open at the back, off to the side. It wasn't the main stage. We thought maybe a couple of thousand people would turn up. 10,000 people in this small field and the whole front of the audience were i would say their age group was 18 to 25 and they were singing every lyric to the hurting which and an album that wasn't very big in america songs from the big chair was our big breakthrough here and it was fascinating they'd all basically discovered us through modern bands citing us as an influence which a lot of bands do young bands now and understandably they relate to the hurting because it was written when we were that age. <laughs> so they relate to the lyrics. Um, these are college kids. We were that age when we wrote that, that, that music. So I, I think that because of streaming, we, we have a broader audience than we ever did. And as far as the rest, playing live, I mean, playing live is still big for us. I mean, we, we play big venues still. That's, that's fun. We just don't do it as much as we used to do it because we don't want to. I mean, yeah. <laughs> life on the road is not something that you yearn for most of the time. It's, you know, once you've had a few, a couple of months of it, you're like, okay, I need to go home for a bit. Then. A couple of months, yeah, sounds a lot. Like a week on the road for me is it's like plenty. <laughs> yeah. My son, when he was in high school, watched the show, Psych. And yeah. so just to stay current with him, I would watch it as well. And, you know, it was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed the show. And then somewhere along the line, you come up here, <laughs> you become part of the storyline. And I got, you know, Hey, I know that guy, you know, like he's, <laughs> so, and my son now knows you too. So suddenly, yeah. you know, exactly to your point. And even in this little radio one or two, whatever it was, interview that you did at some point where they invited this, uh, called a woman and her daughter got on the phone yeah. with you and she was 16 and oh my god she was so excited because this was uh the guy from the guy Psych. From <laughs> so how did that happen so you started acting a little bit yeah it wasn't it, it happened by by chance i mean james rodriguez who's the lead actor in in well one of the two lead actors in psych um he plays sean sean spencer in psych came to one of our shows and turns out he's a huge Tears for Fears fan. And he managed to get backstage with another friend. And, and it's like, you got to come and be on our show. And I was, I, I kind of, yeah, whatever, and ignored it. And then I looked at the show and thought, this is pretty amusing. I can see why, you know, it would be amusing for me to be on it because there's a lot of homage to an era that I came from. And uh, so I did, I went up to Vancouver and shot the, the first episode I was in. Basically, they abuse me every time on the show. So the first episode, I'm basically being held captive in someone's house 
for money, but, you know, I'm, I, I have to play on cue. It's a billionaire, basically. And we did that, and it got a great response. So then they invited me back a second and third time, to, and each time to be abused in some way, shape, or form. In, in one, I, I was shot, mauled by a panther, and another one. Um, mm-hmm. And they became friends. The interesting thing about the show is the whole cast are really, really close friends. They've all become this kind of little family of people. And they've become friends of mine. So, you know, when, when I get the call to go and do it, I, I happily go do it because it's very amusing and easy to do. But interesting that, yes, I get recognized a lot by younger people for being that guy from Psych because they, a, a, they have a huge cult following. And you've been living in Los Angeles now for quite a while. And I know you're a keen observer of what goings on around you and and commenting here and there. And I was recently out there for a week doing some some work. And, you know, to me, it's just overwhelmingly become such a cannabis capital that's becoming so much of what the scene is about, the culture. Maybe it's just me, hey? You know, that's, <laughs> po- <laughs> that's possible too. But how do you look at, at that? aspect of what's happened in Los Angeles? Well, I mean, I think it's fine. I mean, for me, it doesn't agree with me. So it's one thing that I don't actually use because I always end up, although maybe because I've never tried the right type, but I always end up feeling slightly paranoid and kind of just doesn't seem to agree with me. But, you know, my feeling about that is, has always been the same, which is it never made any sense to me that alcohol is perfectly legal and weed is illegal. You can buy cigarettes, you can't buy weed. You can buy alcohol, you can't. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't see how it's any worse for your health. If anything, quite the opposite. It's been proved to be incredibly beneficial to a lot of people's health. I find that's the way the world, to me, it's leading the way. It's but the do you feel like it's had an up. impact on the on the culture in any way? Because here in New York, you know, we're anticipating the legalization of recreational is, is coming and, and things have eased up quite a bit anyway. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk of, you know, what is New York going to be like? What's going to happen? How is it going to change? What Since L.A. has gone through that, I'm wondering if, yeah. if there's anything that's visibly different in just in terms of people's daily lives or entertainment no, or I mean, other things. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, because it, it becomes different for different generations. So the younger, like, you know, my, my daughter's friends, primarily the boys smoke, right? So it's primarily the boys at that age. And they they have their own little kind of, you know, little trend, I guess. And then a lot of the edibles get used by older people we know. So it's it kind of, it's, 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 uh, it's and an the CBD interesting, exactly stuff. CBD or yeah, the CBD stuff comes in. So yeah, what I notice in, in LA would be a lot of younger kids smoking weed, a lot of older people taking edibles. That's pretty much what you see. As far as a cultural shift, I don't know because, you know, LA's always been pretty lax about it anyway. And I think to a certain degree, you know, New York has too. I mean, it's not like I don't walk down the street here now and people aren't smoking. They're all smoking. You know, people are smoking wherever I walk a lot of the time. I don't think they're particularly strict about the laws. I think that's really since they eased up in the last year or so officially. I mean, yes, of course, you could always see it here and there, but now it's it's much more prevalent. Yeah, it's more more prevalent. Yeah. I mean I think, you know, it will be 
it will be one of those things that will slowly just make its way to being something that's just normal, as it kind of should should be. I mean, I think the the as far as a cultural shift, what's interesting is I think the cultural part of it is the underground cultural bit of it. And once it becomes actually legal, it'll be less of an underground culture. It'll just become normal. That's one thing, yeah, we're, we keep thinking about here as well, because it's here so underground that it's been that way. Yeah. Whereas in California, you know, you've had like 10 or 15 years already when it's yeah. kind of above ground. So let's, let's uh, talk a little bit also about your new record, The Tipping Point. Uh, so far, there is there just one single that's been released from one, that, right? One track, the title, yeah, yeah, the type, the title track, which I find, yeah, as one of your commentators said, catchy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it it's. I, I think the biggest compliment I've been given is that it sounds like us. <laughs> you know, so I mean, the, once once you actually get to the point where you kind of have a sound we're not desperately trying to be something we're not and 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 we're good with that i mean we did the, the album you know that, that will be coming out in february it's taken a long time to make but we had many false starts and and we were we were going through a phase with the management company and record company we were with at the time trying to get us to write with more current songwriters and more and work with more current producers and and so we did the dating game i mean there's no harm in that i don't think and and you may learn something you never know but by the end of it we realized it's just not us you know i mean it's 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 clearly us trying to be something we're not and so we scrapped all that and well we kept half the songs and reworked them production wise and then rewrote well wrote afresh another half of an album so we finished it all during lockdown last year which is the one good thing that came out of lockdown was we we were stuck in a studio we had nothing else to do so we ended up at the end of it, we're not with our management company. We're not with that record company. We're now with a whole bunch of fresh new people. And we just made this album on our own. We did what we wanted to do, made it what, how we wanted it to sound. And then then went about finding a management company and record company that agreed or could understand where we're coming from. And so now we're in a good place where everyone's on the same page. We've made a record we're really happy with and we're really proud of. And we think is representative of us now. And the other thing about making a record now is that, and, and last year especially, is that with everything that's gone on in the last, you know, God knows how many years now, I mean, we're talking through the Trump years to the pandemic, Roland's wife unfortunately passed away in 2017. So we had a lot of material to, to, to work with. And if, if we couldn't write an album and a meaningful album after all that, then we had no business really doing this anymore. Well, something in me wants to hear those, all that music you rejected, just to, to see, you know, <laughs> curious about how that might I mean, have sounded. I mean, I just, yeah, it just wasn't, I, I don't know, I wasn't comfortable with it. I, I just, at no, the of end course. of it, I'm like, if, if, this, if this is what you want to do, you go do that, but it's not, it's not me. And then there's a tour with that as well, right? Yeah, we, we're, we're due to go out and tour. It's not been announced yet, but it should be announced soon next May in the States. So through sort of mid-May through the end of June here. And then 
then we go on to the UK after that. Um, as it stands right now, if the dates don't change, I think I'll be in Jones Beach on my birthday next year. I Whoa, believe. That's okay. It. I'm uh, <laughs> going to get a ticket right now, if possible. I don't think they're for sale yet, but and okay. they haven't been well, announced yet. But, but that's, that's, that, those are the dates I've seen, which is strange because the last time I was at Jones Beach was in 1990. <laughs> and it was the day before my birthday. Oh, my God. We had, really? a birth, we had a birthday party at my loft the day after the show. All right, so we'll have to do it again, man. Yep. Get ready for that party as well. Thank you very much, Kurt Smith, for being on my show today. It's really had a fun time talking with you. It's always great to talk to you, David. Look forward to catching up another time. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.